We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. We seek blessings on the Prophet, peace be upon him. Uh, before we jump in, we had a lot of conversations last time about the hudud and all that. Did you all have any questions about anything? Okay, and so we're, we're basically um, in the middle of the paragraph, although near the bottom of the page. So the point we discussed last time is that there's these, these uh, common crimes that are the foundation of the hudud laws. And then what we're going to see is that he's going to uh, uh, add a, a variation to this in, in the next sentence. So, so they're basically adultery, robbery, uh, consumption of alcohol, defamation, and apostasy. Those are like the big ones. And so these are sort of the crimes against the state. Then uh, whoever wants to read first, we'll start here where it says the real paradox. I don't know if you all can see it, I can make it bigger as it helps. Oh, y'all. You know, it's completely lost where we are. Hold on. Okay, here it is. The real paradox at the bottom. Who would like to read for us first? Who wants to break the ice and volunteer? I'll do it. I, I'm better at kid books, but. <laughs> um, all right. Bismillah. The real paradox of the hudud is that while in contemporary Islam, they are often imagined to be the harbing, harbinger and flagship of Islamic law in the classic tradition of the hudud penalties were rarely applied precisely because of the space occupied by the divine in defining and redressing the crime. On the one hand, by categorizing a crime under the hudud, the definition of the crime and the appropriate penalty became sanctified and immutable. But on the other hand, by placing it within the category of hudud, the jurists effectively endowed the penalty with the largely symbolic role because the something, yeah, technical requirements and administrative costs of enforcing these sacred penalties were largely prohibitive. As with all matters involving the rights of God, as far as the state is concerned, it is imperative to tread cautiously, lest in trying to uphold the bonds of God, whether through ignorance, arrogance, or incompetence, the state itself ends up committing an infraction against the divine. The Prophet Muhammad Wasallam's injunction which was adapted into a legal maxim, commanded that any doubt must serve to suspend the application of the hudud. In, mm -hmm. in addition to the presumption of innocent, oh yeah, innocence and application as to all criminal accusations, Muslim jurists often cited the injunction above in greatly circumscribing the application of the hudud penalties through a variety of doctrinal and procedural hurdles. In general, repentance, forgiveness, and doubt acted to prevent the application of the hudud. In dealing with the rights of God, it was always better to forgive than to punish. Repentance of the defendant acted to suspend the hudud, and all doubt had to be construed in favor of vindicating the accused. Okay, so so let's uh, let's explore this. So first, we're talking about about these these crimes, but then he says the real paradox is that it's often looked to be you know, the, the foundation of Islamic law. And he uses the scary word, the harbinger of Islamic law, the harbinger of Islamic law, like bringing on something scary. They were rarely applied. And so 
So let's think, for example, of the first case. Let's pull up. Uh, let's pull up IOS to actually look at it. Here. All right, and can you all see this uh, screen that Quran should be coming up in a second? You all see that? Mm -hmm. Okay, and I can make it bigger also. But, uh, let's translation just because easy English. So Surah Nur, Surah 24, and starting from Ayah 2. So Wazaniyatu Wazani, so strike the adulterous and the adulterer a hundred times. Do not let compassion for them keep you from carrying out God's law. This is pretty scary. Okay. Mm -hmm if you believe in Allah on the last day, and assure that a group of believers witness the punishment. Okay. And then the adulterer is only fit to marry the adulteress, and so forth and so on. It's about the marriage. Okay. But what is required for a conviction? That's for those who accuse case women and fail to provide four witnesses. Write them 80 times. So this ayah, in terms of adjudication, is literally the easiest ayah to enforce in all of Islamic law. So if you have someone who accuses such and such woman of, of adultery, and you fail to provide four witnesses, let's say you provide three, you get 80 lashes. So now think, when are you possibly going to have four witnesses? If it's like a public spectacle. When it's recorded nowadays. I mean, and that's also actually a debated uh, issue. You know, would, would video evidence uh, be, be counted? Would photographic evidence be counted? But again, you know, mm -hmm. you have a good angle, you know, at the risk of, of, of you know, wrestling mm -hmm. this in a goofy way. But the point is, yeah. You're almost never ever going to have four witnesses. So, so this punishment becomes almost symbolic. And and then the point he's making is that we have a principle, a maxim based on the teachings of the Prophet, peace be upon him, that if you have any doubt, you have to put these punishments on hold all these other crimes that are being mentioned, uh, you know, whether we're talking about defamation, whether we're talking about stealing and such. Because again, think of how, how severe the punishment is for stealing. Punishment for stealing is amputation. And, and of course, even that's qualified. It's not like you were stealing a pencil. It's something more akin to, to grand larceny and such. Um, but we may have talked about this before, that when Omar was the Khalifa, so we're talking just about a decade after the prophet, peace be upon him, there's a famine and people are stealing bread because they had no, no sustenance. And the practice was that, uh, that every single resident in the Islamic land would be given rations. And so Amar announces, uh, you're all not supposed to be stealing. 
but because we're not fulfilling, in, for lack of a better term, our end of the bargain, meaning we're not providing you with rations, we're not providing you with your needs, we cannot then justify giving you a punishment for this. And so this is the point that he's making, that uh, the Hadud themselves sometimes are looked at symbolically as what Islamic law is all about, but they're sort of like the fringes. Uh, but implementing them is very hard if you truly follow the text. If you bypass the text, then you can totally you know, apply any of these and use them randomly and, and haphazardly and such. Of course, if you have an uncoerced confession, then you know that changes things. But if it's an accusation, like in a court, uh, just like we have here, you know, uh, beyond a reasonable doubt, historically, it's been very hard to apply these uh, these punishments. Then, on top of that, there's the issue of seeking forgiveness. Uh, that's a little bit more complicated because the state does not have the authority to grant forgiveness. But when we gave the example of, of murder last time, we said murder is a crime against a family as opposed to a crime against the state. If it's just one murder, if it's two murders, then it's a crime against the state. But if it's one murder and a person is convicted, then it's on the family to decide what the punishment is. And, and it's usually either two choices or three choices. They're both basically choosing from the same material. Uh, one option is execution. The family can choose that. Another option is forgiveness, which is recommended. Another option is blood money. And very often you'll find forgiveness and blood money combined as one thing. But the burden is on the family who has already faced the murder of their loved one to then decide what is the, what is the punishment for, for the killer of the loved one. So that's a double, double difficulty as far as you ask me. Is that followed anywhere anymore? Uh, where murder is a crime against family versus state? I mean, you have it in ways. I mean, so I'll give you an example of a student of mine, a uh, family in Karachi. Uh, his uncle, somebody walked up to, up to his car and it was like uh, my, my student's uncle and cousin. So still like a dad and a daughter uh, are sitting in a car outside a house. Somebody walks up, opens fire point blank, kills the, the father. I mean, my student's uncle and injures the daughter and then the murderer runs away. And like 10 years later, the murderer comes back and says, I'm the guy who killed your dad. You can do whatever you want with me. So they went through the whole deliberation about this, you know, and all that. And, and, um, uh, I don't know if they actually went through the process officially of pressing charges. I think they did just for the, you know, doing everything legally properly, but then they forgave him. They decided that, all right, he's been on the run for 10 years. He seems to clearly have, have remorse because he's come back here. And so they let him go. You know, they thought there's nothing to be gained by taking his life. You know. uh, I suspect, however, um, that uh, is this applied evenly across social classes and ethnicities in any particular state, probably not. 
this is why I mean Tarek Ramadan. I mean you know, he's kind of infamous, but uh, about 15 years ago he called for a moratorium on the death penalty in most majority societies because he was making the point that number one, these who do punishment should be a deterrent. Um, and when they're being applied, they should be applied fairly and evenly. And he says, in none of these Muslim majority countries is happening, so we should put, a, put this on a hold until we get this straightened out. I don't know that anyone actually listened to him. He got a lot of attention for it. I mean, he also got a lot of pushback as people just decided he's trying to change Islam and all that stuff, but I didn't think that's what he was. Right, and this concept looks closer to like restorative justice where you want to help the families versus punish uh, the individual for committing a cat, uh, committing an act. So mm -hmm. yeah. I see that too. Yeah, uh, I would say it's in the same universe. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I was just curious. So at this point, nowhere, nowhere in the world is it like a state law. I mean, it's been a while since I've studied the implementation of all these things, but my default is to say it's probably not being implemented consistently anywhere. I mean, yeah, I'll give you part of the Sharia. It is officially part of the Sharia. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And uh, I'll give you uh, a different example of the dark side of these things. Uh, so, so this is the friend of a cousin of mine. Uh, she, she may or may not have been a convert at the time. I think she became a convert. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so non-Muslim uh, was studying abroad, like in Jordan or something, had a relationship with a guy and then got pregnant. And then the guy ran away. And, and so then she had to go to the hospital to deliver the baby. And in the hospital, they're asking, okay, who's the father? And, and either she wouldn't name the father or she couldn't prove that they were married or something. And so the hospital said, you know, by law, uh, we have to take this as a confession of adultery. And she's not even a Muslim, right? And she's not even a resident of the country. And so then she got imprisoned. You know, this is literally as a new mother with, and in prison, she finds a whole bunch of other women that are in the same boat. And, and I think they were all traumatized from their experiences, but they convinced her to take the punishment of a hundred lashes, which she did. And then on top of that, you know, after that, she converted to Islam. Or no, 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 she converts to Islam in prison and then she's taken the lashes. And you can make the argument there that, well, you know, version to Islam is erasing everything. So she probably should not have lashes anyway. But this is one example of the dark side of the implementation, the 50% implementation of these things. And usually, historically, what you actually do in Islamic law is you figure out some semi bogus excuses to prevent the punishment. So one strange example of this is what we call, uh, it was, uh, what do they call it? The sleeping baby delivery. Where if you were to measure, add up all the dates, all right, let's say baby's born in March, but the marriage was in February, then in case something's wrong there. And, and so you just uh, suggest that they had some miraculous delivery or miraculous process from conception to delivery. Just by not implementing the hudud. So you find literally uh, books on how to allow for doubt. You know, believing that delivery, uh, that full conception to delivery happened in a month, 
believe your full conception to delivery took two years. So you find literally books on that. Well, it also it also seems like it's more of a social class issue. If she had the right support system, they could have made any excuse up, right? Mm-hmm. Of who the father was or whether she was raped or whatnot. But mm-hmm. because she went in by herself, confessed truth because she was scared and alone, mm-hmm. she was given her situation. Yeah. And that's exactly what the law should not be doing, right? It should be erring towards uh, figuring out a way to avoid the punishment. And the most vulnerable people should be the ones that are the most protected. And I'll give you a worse example because these are real world examples. And we've been talking about, you know, community work and service and all that. So somebody somewhere in writing the rape laws in the subcontinent determined that, uh, uh, how did it work out? That, ah. Uh, if you go to the police with an accusation of rape uh, by someone who is not your husband, then they took it as a confession of Zina. Yeah. And, and so this is a big issue in the subcontinent as well as other places, but in subcontinent, it's gotten the most attention also in part because it's also had the most pushback there too. And, and so uh, number one, there've been many, many women who've been arrested and punished how was rape handled at the time of the prophet like if a woman went and accused a man what was the precedent right like if we look back to how it was handled then Mm -hmm. so so asafa Qureshi, she teaches at university of madison law school she wrote a paper on this and she's saying that the categorization was different that uh back then it was considered an act of violence yeah, Rape so, was considered an act of violence. Yeah, so it would be in the same category as assault, which it is, uh, as murder. It would be in that category. Hiraba is, is the word in, in Arabic. And, and in some of the hadith, the, the punishments were, were, were ultra-severe. But how does it differ in terms of being accused and getting justice, right? So here in the subcontinents, it's more, well, you, it's part of zina, right? Because you were part of this act. Mm-hmm. How are they justifying that to be violence and no longer rape? So, so, so the point is, it was uh, rape was uh, categorized as an act of violence. Now it's being categorized as an act of sexuality. Okay. Uh, it's categorized as zina. Yeah. And so you'll have, you know, who knows how many women will not even come to the police because they'll be in worse shape. No. So then, what was a, what's the punishment in the subcontinent? Uh, I think at the very least, it's it's imprisonment. For being raped and going up to the cops and telling them? Subhanallah. Wow. Yeah. That's great. Ridiculous that is. is And defamation for the family that your daughter was part of Zina, right? Uh, I suspect. Now you've got that time to the family. Yeah, I suspect in the rural areas, that's probably true as well. Yeah. Yeah, but for the law to actually punish a woman who goes up and tells, uh, there is no. There is no amount of evidence that she can bring in, or that is the evidence because then you're you're committing. Well, it's that. a cultural thing, right? So whether you're Hindu or Muslim or whatnot, you must have done something to provoke rape onto you. Why weren't you covered enough? Why were you out alone? Why were you out at night? Why, where was your male guardian, Hindu, Muslim, whatever? You shouldn't have been out. 
So I would say you that would be it upon yourself. That would be part of the social interpretation of it, yeah. But in terms of the adjudication of it, doesn't even go that far. Right. It's literally, you know, that you've been raped means that you you had relations with someone who's not your husband, therefore. Isn't it? And I would say that that even in Houston, in our social society, it's still the girl's fault if something ever happens. Meaning, I would say culturally, but uh, mm-hmm. would you say it's the same in terms of in the court system? No, but I think that's a further step, right? So mm-hmm. within our society, we still hold those sta- standards and morals, right? Yeah, absolutely. And then if I mean, you, yeah. So we, it's a more separation of church and state. So your church has one value system and how you're going to be judged. And you can go to the courts and the cops and be judged differently. But mm-hmm. your family and you're ostracized from your yeah. church then. Yeah, that, that I, would, uh, I would agree with. And I think that even uh, contributes to why so many women would not come forward in the first place. Right, but I'm just, I'm, I'm perplexed that legally it does, uh, but legally in Pakistan, India, it would do things like that. Um, I think in India, in fact, I mean, at least in India, I've read some stories about it. I don't think it even gets to the courts first. It's the police officers who really don't think it's a big deal, so, you know? Uh, I believe that too, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So they'll be the ones accusing the woman or, you know, covering up for the guys that they know their buddies or whatever it is. Yeah, I mean, if it's in a village, then they're all probably, they all probably know each other too, yeah. Yeah. What about Saudi Arabia? What have, What's the punishment for rape or how yeah. is uh, again, this is something I haven't looked up in a long time, and so I can give you con- uh, conjecture. So one thing that's already, you know, it's already established is that the royal family is sort of, you know, above the law. And even that's at le- different levels, meaning the closer you are to the king, the more you are above the law, the further you are from the king, the more you're subject to the whims of the king. But uh, I would suspect that there's probably a little bit more sense in those laws that, you know, I mean, but Saudi Arabia is also notorious for, for the government, you know, uh, accusing political pr- or taking in all kinds of political prisoners and such. But my suspicion is specifically on this issue, and this is literally just partial educated guess and partial hope that they have a little bit more rational uh, implementation of it. But yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, we witness, you know, through the court systems of these Muslim majority countries, the devastation that happens when you have literally the cherry picking of the law. Mm-hmm. Because somebody at some point, somebody had to think to themselves that, okay, this is a rational connection, that this is how we should categorize rape in our, in our legal coding. And whether or not that person was thinking theoretically or, or, or what, but, you know, who knows how much devastation that's had on people's lives. This is literally a choice of categories. And so when I, when I break, bring up these points, it's not for us to be completely miserable at the condition of the world. I mean, maybe, maybe that's part of it. But um, part of it is to say that uh, the place we're in, um, there's all kinds of complexities and problems that every generation of Muslims has to try to figure out that uh, most people avoid the work of doing so. Yeah, how, I mean, I can't even like if this is something that you want to be actively working against. How how do you what do you do? How do you do it? So the the best thing that I can come up with an answer is uh, you you pick 
uh, a cause that, and I think we've talked about this before, you pick a cause that you're passionate about, you know, that you're willing to dedicate your heart and soul to. And, and there's no shortage of causes. And then in the process, you ally yourself, you join up with other people that are working on other causes. That might have something like that. Let's say you want to change the rules of Pakistan. And I think Asifa Qureshi is writing about it. I've I've read her work too. Um, But how do you go to Pakistan and change the laws? I mean, there are muftis there. There are going to be all these arguments that no, we understand it better. Uh, So where is the change? How is the change? How's the reform going to come about? mm -hmm. So, so there you'd have to think of all the different prongs of the attack. So one is, okay, just textually, how would you argue it, okay? Another would be, who are the people of influence that can make it happen? So on the one hand, there's gonna be the legislature, but on the other hand, there's also power brokers that can push their way through to things. In the same way in our society, lobbyists get what they want, right? And so you figure out all the different ways that are part of your attack, and and, uh, and then you, you look for the people that will join in in the goal with you and you need people in all these different arenas of life to, to make it happen. Now, keep in mind, uh, that is a change of the law, but is that gonna change the plight of women in the society overall? Probably not. And so that's why it's to figure out what, what issue it is that you're passionate about and, and work accordingly, and then also try to connect it with, with the bigger picture as well. And so think of your issue as like the 50 year goal, you know, maybe a 15 year goal, but it might be a hundred year goal. And then think of the bigger issue because I always think in like 100 year and 500 year plans. You know, I don't usually think in five year plans or something like that. Um, Do you think to change a cultural norm like this would be that long, like a 50 year plan? It uh, wouldn't be short term, five, 10 year, 15 year even? I'd say probably a hundred years. Really? It changes the law. Um, and I'm being idealistic, knowing almost nothing about Pakistani, even Pakistani. Um, uh, I'm guessing if you had an all prong approach, including uh, you know, a whole public media campaign, including, you know Well, let's just let's make it down to just culturally being that okay, it's not the female's fault, right? Would that be that long? I mean, are, is that much of the society ready to blame the female in okay, so, a race case? So, so how long do you think it would take to change it in America? In just our, in our Pakistani culture in Houston or yeah, in America? America? American society, because we have a lot of the same sentiments here. I mean, the Me Too right, movie So here's what I noticed. It, those that grew up in, in America have a different ideology than those who were recent immigrants, right? Okay, but I think you're still talking about so basics, it took, right? I'd say a generation, right? Okay. From those that came in the 80s to those that came in 2010, mm-hmm. right? So the second generation, the generation that was born and raised here have a different ideology, even though their parents subscribed to the original ideology. Okay. And so if you introduce it, just like, I mean, recycling, they, introduce, they didn't bother with the parents. They introduced it in elementary schools here, and they changed mm-hmm. the mindset of the youth coming up. So okay. could we not just change the mindset in schools or something where we change it in a generation or two? Uh, I think possibly, 
but I also believe that there's other cultural, uh, think of culture as all these different components that all feed off each other. And I think gender norms are probably going to be the hardest things to change. I mean, a way to think about this is, okay, so every man has a mother mm -hmm. and why does toxic masculinity continue? Because mm -hmm. part of it is that uh, the women are also taught to internalize it, that this is how things are, this is how things are supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, and then you add other aspects like, you know, Okay, how does, uh, how does earning happen in a society? So in an urban society, it'll be very common for both the, the husband and wife to work. In a rural society, uh, for the wife to work, that's violating a social norm. And uh, I would like to think that, yeah, these are things you can change in a generation, but uh, you know, it's taking this long for Me Too to happen in the United States. And to really add more complexity, uh, this is the first time we've had a woman head of state in, in our country, right? Well, Pakistan's done it 40 years ago. And, and so, so if we're talking about something that's lasting, um, you know, like, okay, so if we talk to the common 20 year old Pakistani, urban Pakistani, uh, they'd probably be in agreement with what we're talking about here. I suspect, you know, and a lot of times they're a lot more liberal than we are. Um, but when we're talking about actually changing the cultural norms and changing the institutions, but changing the cultural norms for it to last, uh, I think it'll take longer. Hmm. Okay. A theoretical kind of question, but is there guidance theory. in the Sharia on what should change first, the law or the cultural norms? Yeah, great question. I think when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent laws, he didn't care. I mean, he did care what the cultural norms were, but it wasn't like a, okay, it was a slow progression. You did talk about it. I don't know. What's your answer to this? Okay, well, okay, you just turned, you just did <laughs> a right turn. Um, so the, the goal is to try to uh, keep whatever is great of the culture, and to, to have an Islam that conforms and fits naturally to that. And so the Islam in America, the goal is for it to be as natural to the American experience as possible, especially the good aspects of, of American life. Make it as indigenous. And I mean, Dr. Omar's analogy, uh, Omar Farrakh Abdullah's analogy is that it should be like, you know, clear water you know, over uh, uh, going uh, a stream through, you know, through the whole landscape and such. And so that's what Islam should be like, as opposed to something that is imposed upon a population, forcing them to transform. So the transformation has to start from the grassroots and however far it goes or doesn't go, that's, you know, how you're molding your indigenized Islam. And we have examples of that in the Sharia or, or like, how, how, what's a proof of that, that that's what Islam says? I mean, if we look at Islam in all the different parts of the world as a legacy of these previous Islam, uh, um, look at how different the experiences of, of Turks versus Daisies versus Southeast Asians versus Africans versus North Africans and such. Uh, 
the namaz is the same, right? Ramadan is the same. But your day-to-day interaction with people, it's African Islam is African. You know, Arab Islam is Arab, Desi Islam is Desi. I mean, uh, Pakistan is also kind of a, uh, um, uh, a unique phenomenon because it's the product of migration. And then Desis in America, whether Indian or Pakistani, are also a product of migration. And so it's kind of like you're keeping some things and leaving a whole bunch of things behind. And, and it's often in, in, in uh, what's the word, a passive pro- uh, process as opposed to something that people have put in time to try to figure out how is this supposed to look, how is it supposed to feel, you know, Islam in America and such. It's more like, all right, here's what we eat. Okay, we don't have ghee, so let's use vegetable oil, you know. And so it becomes a replacement of ingredients, culturally. But, I mean, uh, and it's a point to, to take it a step further, just look at all the beauty of, of Islam in all these regions, whether talking about the architecture or, or the clothing or the food and all that stuff. You know, that would be sort of like the living illustration of it. And again, how unique it is in all these places until the 20th century. Because in the 20th century, then everyone just started making their munches look the same. I should say the, the latter half of the 20th century. And a lot of that has to do with Saudi money and such. But, you know, think of uh, the, like, where did we get the dome from for masjids? Like, usually when we think of a masjid, we think of a dome and a minaret. Where does a dome come from? Is it from the cathedrals? Yeah, well, it comes from Eastern Orthodox cathedrals, Eastern Orthodox churches. And then where does the minaret come from? It comes from pagan temples in Iraq. Okay. And now, you know, we decide anywhere in the world, if we're going to build a masjid, it has to have a dome, it has to have a minaret. And so that's more of a modern process that architects will, it'll drive them crazy. So, so I'll give you a funny example. Like, you know, I, I can name a number of masjids in America where they brought in a Muslim architect who designed something, you know, wonderful. And then the masjid administrators who are professionals in other fields um, decide to make it gaudy and, and, and ugly and then bring in the world's largest chandelier and all that stuff. Numerous masjids throughout, throughout the country where the architect is just like, I can't be part of this. I can't put my name on this anymore. And, and so that's also a statement to, to, to modern Islam. A lot of it is, is mass production too. So what is your thought on modern Islam being very straight and narrow and just a, only a slice of Islam is the correct Islam and everybody has to follow that same homogenous slice of Islam? Yeah, I think that's true as a representative for a lot of modern Islam. I think it's completely destructive. But why is it heading that way? I mean, part of it is as a society, even before social media, uh, even before social media, uh, we've been wanting everything to be just black and white and simple. Okay. uh, One of the things that I loved about studying Islamic law in particular is that it's literally saying the world is a big complicated place. And, And how do you fulfill the aspirations of the Quran and the prophet peace be upon him in a real world scenario? But what it's turned into for a whole lot of people, um, you know, who a lot of people are autodidacts, meaning they just study for themselves without an actual curriculum, is that, okay, here's Islam, here's the rules, and now uh, uh, um, thinking that they're doing something Islamic, which means it should be getting closer to God, more often than not, it's an exertion of power. And so when you're making a giant masjid, 
that's an exertion of power, right? So, I'm sorry, you're cutting off. It's a lot of power. Oh, sorry. I'll talk closer. So Islam for a lot of people, um, collective social Islam should be something that facilitates your relationship with Allah Ta'ala and inspires you to want to get closer to Allah Ta'ala. And Islamic law is one of the facilities for that in terms of trying to establish stability in your life, routines in your life, and certain aspirations in your life. Uh, but more often than not, it becomes an exertion of power for a lot of people, forcing people that this is how you have to look, this is how you have to dress. And so the longer your beard is, then somehow that means the more pious you are. You know, the more different ways you're covered, somehow the more pious you are. You know, the, the more times you can say Alhamdulillah and all these other things, you know, the more pious you are. And so it's all surface symbolism. You know? Yes. Okay. And I feel like the mushes and the imams and the darsantis are prescribing to that Islam. Yeah. Right? To where that's what you need to show or that's what how you need to behave. Yeah, exactly. And so are they being coached by their leadership or their ministry leaders that this is how we're going to teach Islam to the population? Uh, I think uh, it's a communal project of self-study. The idea being that, well, you know, I'm a knowledgeable professional. I can study this material for myself. And, and what people don't realize is that they're studying using the tools of their profession. Uh, as opposed to, you know, studying according to the tools of the field itself. Okay. And, and, and so uh, this is literally what we call fundamentalism. So in popular culture, when we're speaking of, when we're using the term fundamentalism, we're talking about extremists, right? And people who are rigid. In the academic study of religion, a fundamentalist is someone who, who throws away the whole history of the study of the tradition and just goes to the text and say, the text means X, Y, Z, Y. It's not obvious to you. It's obvious to me. That's what it means. And I just literally described, you know, half the uncles and aunties in the community. Okay. <laughs> so. I mean, that's Wahhabism, right? So, so Wahhabism is a little bit different. And, and so, so, so we have the Salafis and we have the Wahhabis. And so those are two different groups. And so the Salafis started as a movement to basically say that, all right, <laughs> uh, all we need is the Quran and the Hadith we don't really need this whole history of Islamic law. So, uh, the Wahhabis are more uh, basically in alliance with, with the House of Saud in, in Saudi Arabia and such. But in terms of methodology, it's very similar to, to, to the Salafis and such. Um, but the idea being that you don't need training. But the end result, as you're all illustrating, is that when you go through this without the training, you actually make Islam more restrictive. That the scholar should actually, uh, as a source of knowledge, be facilitating how to make your life easier. And I'll give you one simple example. When we imagine Islamic law, I don't know how much your views have been affected by, by us going through this book, but when we imagine Islamic law in our community, we often, often imagine it to be something very, very strict. And then we'll use terms like the Sufis and spirituality, and we'll imagine that to be really, really flexible. It's actually the inverse. Islamic spirituality is very strict. Yeah. And, but Islamic law is by design actually very, very flexible. But if someone's only reading the highlights, they're not going to get that. Because, I mean, I always give this example that, you know, I'll have three different uh, students coming to my office, all each three 
each of the three is talking about drinking and they all have problems drinking, right? They're almost Muslim and such. They're gonna get three different answers from me depending upon each person's specific context. So One what per- would, how, yeah, go ahead, sorry. Oh, no, go ahead, go with your question and then I'll answer it. I was just gonna say, what would the three responses be? So one person, I might tell them, okay, you got to just stop drinking. Okay, that's the easy one. But that they're only going to get that answer if I know it's going to work. Because they already know they're not supposed to drink, right? So maybe they just needed one extra nudge. And so that's one person that I'm evaluating either because I know them or in the context of the conversation. Second person, that's not going to work. I might tell them, you got to change your friends. Third person... I'll see them if I can, uh, uh, I have to try to see if I can get them to, to focus on some other habits to wean them off the alcohol and such. But and in each case, if alcohol is still not allowed, you yeah. just give them different avenues of how they can avoid it. So, but the point being that the, they're coming to me as this Muslim authority and the stereotype would be, okay, how could you ever tell someone they're allowed to drink? You know, they already know they're not supposed to drink, okay? And meaning even, you know, non-Muslims know they shouldn't be drinking, you know, even if they might say socially, it's fine. But um, the point is, how do we facilitate the next step? That's the question that the legal scholar is giving you, essentially. So, uh, the legal scholar is not giving you steps three, four, and five, but is giving you step one. But then uh, part of the history of our community is that you would have a relationship with some sort of mentor type figure. What are they called? A sheikh or a peer or whatever it is, right? I mean, sometimes the peer is not educated, but the principle is the same. It's how do we put you on a step-by-step process towards healthier and healthier and better and better behavior? Or give you a different example. Suppose you have someone who doesn't pray uh, and they come to you and say, what should I do? Okay. You can tell them you have to make your prayers or you're going to go to hell. They already know that, you know, or they have some vision of that. And so one student, I might tell them, okay, see if you can make one a day. And they might come back after a month and say it didn't work. Another student, I'll tell them, all right, see if you can make one rakat for each prayer. Okay. And then every student, when I say that, responds, wait, are you allowed to do that? I'll tell them, okay, you're praying zero right now. You can't get worse than zero. And usually what actually works is if you do one rakat for each of the five prayers for a month and then increase that to two, and then increase that to three when relevant, and then four when relevant, then usually within about four months, you can get all the prayers in. But no one ever wants to take that approach because they're afraid they're blaspheming. So they stay at zero. For another person, I might tell them, okay, make such those. Or another person, I might tell them, okay, get your sleep schedule in order. So part of the process of the conversation is to figure out all the facts and then then to figure out what is the prescription. Okay. But and that's so, to take the time and get to know the person, right? It's just saying, well, you better be doing it or you'll go to hell and that's it. And so uh, if a person comes to me and they're a complete stranger and they ask me a one sentence question they're going to get the most generic one sentence answer then. If the same person asks me a 30 minute question on the same issue, they're probably going to get a different answer. And, and so, and so because they're giving me more facts. So if someone says, all right, if out of anger, someone says talak three times, does it count? And if that's the whole question, I'll say, yeah. 
But if the person says, okay, I have this anger problem and I don't mean it, but I just say it out of anger and I can't contain myself, then I'll say, okay, well, you need to go see a therapist, but no, it doesn't count. Go home. And really? Those are literally real like, world scenarios. No. Okay. Because the Quran says, Allah does not hold you for things that or oaths you make, you know, that are not from your heart. But if it's made from your heart, then it's different. But even then, yeah. he gives a vehicle to break those oaths as well, too. And so, so the point is that the fundamental goal of the entirety of the Sharia is to bring you closer to Allah. That's the goal. But more often than not, uh, our implement is is to do the opposite. Our our uh, and we're doing it out of sincerity in the community. So even all those aunties and uncles we're talking about, they're sincere. They're just not qualified. And the worst happens when either you have someone struggling from trauma or you have, um, you have a new convert. Like we have a convert who just showed up last, uh, two weeks ago. Okay? Appears on the MSA group chat, this WhatsApp group. And... And he's introducing himself. His name is Christian, right? And in this, in the first forty minutes of him being in the group chat, he started asking everybody. Okay, he's been Muslim for two weeks. He started asking everybody, "Where can I go for Zabiha meet?" And then I'm on the side texting the MSA president, you know, like almost like with my, you know, my head to my, my hand to my forehead, saying he's already asking about Zabiha meet. He's been Muslim for two weeks. Who is he talking to right now? Because we have to get him away from them. You know? and, and so we, we kind of ruin the Islam of a whole lot of converts by, by trying to force them to learn everything right away. They're told to learn Urdu too. Like first, oh, yeah. the first day I've, I've, yeah. I've been there. <laughs> yeah. They just took their Shahada and they're told they need to learn Urdu as well. It's like, yeah. what? <laughs> and then they all get like, suddenly they get these accents when they talk, like, you know, their, their religious <laughs> accent. Yeah. So yeah, I've seen it all, all kinds of scary things, but no. Any other questions about any of this? Okay, so, so we'll continue. <laughs> we usually make it through like four sentences. We'll continue with the bottom of this page in addition to the presumption of innocence, blah, 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 blah. And uh, no other big questions, then inshallah, we'll touch base next week. Let me just make sure that we're cool for next week on my calendar. Um, that is Sadaam, March 1st. And we are good. We're good inshallah. And by then in all uh, seriousness, hopefully all the snow will be gone. You people in Texas, are you all okay? What's it been like? Um, the snow has melted. Now we have busted pipes and pool leaks. Oh, subhanAllah. Okay. So hopefully, hopefully um, the, the, the next days will hopefully not be too difficult. Hopefully. So. Alrighty. So inshallah, I'll see, I'll see you all uh, next week. Inshallah. Subhanakallah. Bihamdika. Nashadu illa ilaha illa anta. Nastaghfirika. Wa natubu ilayk. Wa akhir da'wana. Anil alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.